Thanks for listening. Join us now for Perry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. Tyler Thompson, 2010 graduate of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, is with us. He's one of the three screenwriters for the hit TV series, The Chosen. The Chosen is the first ever multi-season television series about the life of Jesus and those he chose to spend his time with. For somebody who has never heard of The Chosen, how do you describe it? Oh, that's a great question. The Chosen is the first ever multi-season television show um, about uh, the life of Christ and those he chose to spend his time with. So there have been a lot of, you know, movies or maybe around Easter every year on TV, a mini series or something, but there's never been a multi-season uh, show about about Jesus. And so we're on season three and we're making history in that way. And one of the unique things about it is that you imagine, you use your imagination, you stick to the, the core story of the Gospels, but mm-hmm. but then you imagine what these characters that we we all know and love you imagine what their backstories are and how they connect and all that stuff and that's really cool yeah it's it's we we look between the lines you know scripture stays the same and and we anytime it's on the page you know in the bible we just put it exactly as it is but anyone who's ever read the gospels knows there's there's a lot left to the imagination you know there there are a lot of gaps if you will not in a bad way just we don't know the whole story behind why peter was fishing or simon was fishing all night on the water you know it just says he was fishing all night and so we get to ask ourselves well why would someone be up all night fishing and not catch anything and so that's how we develop backstories about you know a tax debt and and some trouble with the romans and things like that yeah. And, and, you know, John writes in his gospel, if we could tell all the stories of all the things Jesus did, it would fill all the books in the world or something like that. Yeah, there wouldn't be enough paper or ink. Yeah, I love that. So you were going to go to Columbia School of the Arts, film school. You always mm-hmm. want, you always wanted to be a filmmaker, but your sister mm-hmm. said, hey, why don't you go to Moody first and then go to film school? Yeah, I, I was dead set on film school. She was at Moody and she called me and she said, Ty, I love it here. And I think you would love it here. I think because we both grew up, you know, obviously like in a Christian home or whatever, but um, I feel like we sort of took it, the Bible seriously. And I, and we both were both very creative and we saw it as art, as story as drama, you know, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to make movies about like David and, and Paul and whatever. And, and so I'm going to go to film school, but then she, she got to Moody and she met all these serious minded people and professors and, and, and these communities of, um, you know, just students and academics and scholars who are really digging in. And she was like, I, I think you would really benefit from this foundation. And so um, that's what I did. And then film school just, it faded away once I <laughs> once I got there. Um, plus, I started getting involved with filmmaking immediately after Moody, so that's kind of how that happened. You really dove into the Hebrew language at Moody. Oh yeah, they they I was in. It wasn't just me, but there was a group of about five of us who exhausted Moody's Hebrew classes. Like they they ran out of. <laughs> Class, they had, they had to create one. It was called Advanced Hebrew Reading 3, 
and they didn't even have a room. We had to meet in a closet. Like it was a, it was in, oh, forgive me. I forget the name of the, the building. What's the building that's between like Jenkins and the, the main one? Oh man, you're asking the wrong guy. Cause I'm in Grand Rapids, <laughs> Michigan. Oh, I feel so bad. It's, you know, it was so long ago, but basically they, they just, they didn't even have a classroom for us. So we met with this, with this professor and it was about five of us. And like, they literally had to invent an advanced level class to satiate our appetite. I, I will say I've not so much um, kept up my Hebrew studies on a, on a daily basis. But when we were in Israel scouting for this for this project, you know, studying the locations, it was like riding a bike. We, we were with a rabbi, a Messianic rabbi, and um, about two days into the trip as we were driving, I started reading the the signs, the Hebrew on the signs. Mm. And he looked at me spooked because he didn't, he didn't know. I hadn't told him that I'd studied Hebrew. He thought I just only knew English and he had to translate everything. And all of a sudden I started being able to read menus and like names of towns. And he was like, what, what's going on? And I said, I just remember, it's all coming back. I'm just remembering my, my college studies. Look at you, the Hebrew speaking dude. <laughs> all of a sudden, it's really funny. Yeah. Um, so, but real briefly, how did, you know, studying Hebrew at Moody help you with your work as a writer on The Chosen? Well, particularly Dr. Michael Wexler, who was my first Hebrew teacher there, did not teach Hebrew the way you might teach someone Spanish or French. He he really framed every story that we had to, you know, translate word for word through a theological lens and also just taught us about some of the nuances in the words. You know, English is a very young language. Hebrew is, you know, multiple centuries older than English and the way people, you know, thought uh, in the ancient world is just so different than the way our sort of like maybe what people might call post enlightenment or Western uh, way of thinking is. And so he really almost like melded our minds back to the ways um, in which, you know, first century Middle Eastern people might think. And then the way we think is determinative of how we speak and write. And so then to look at the words through Middle Eastern eyes, and through the lens of like these stories and these cultures made it come alive. It was, it was like being in an immersive experience, like a virtual reality almost, but without, you know, <laughs> like goggles over your eyes. Now, what's interesting is I studied Hebrew, not Greek. Most, most people at Moody study Greek because of Koine Greek in the New Testament. And so sometimes people will say to me, since I work on The Chosen now, which takes place in the New Testament, they would say, well, well you, you studied the wrong language. You studied the wrong testament. And I always tell them, well, first of all, there is no such thing as a wrong testament. And second of all, the people in the stories of the Gospels were not Christians. They were Jews. And the only scripture they had was Torah, which was written in Hebrew. So it's been helpful in the writing process to know that these characters, you know, they didn't have Paul's epistles. You know, they didn't have the the letter to the Hebrews. Like they only had the first five books of the Torah, plus the rest of the Tanakh, you know, and all of those were written in Hebrew. So I wasn't envisioning the chosen when I, when I picked Hebrew, I was just, I thought the stories were more exciting in the Old Testament, not more exciting, but just they were exciting to me in a unique way. And then along comes this show where it, it kind of came in handy. So you graduated from Moody in 2010 and you joined a church and they're, there just happened to be this guy named Dallas Jenkins working at this church. And so eventually you guys decided, hey, let's work on this thing 
that we want to call the chosen. Yeah, it it started as a thing not called the chosen. It, it started. He wanted to make a short film about one of the unnamed shepherds from the Advent story in Luke's Gospel. Uh, which really laid the groundwork and the foundation for what the chosen would become, right? Because it says there were shepherds in the field tending their flocks by night, but we don't get any information, any other information. We don't get their names. We don't get their ages. We don't get their ability level. Um, so for instance, in the story that we, you know, imagined about the shepherds, the, the main character has a, a hobbled foot and has a, a special relationship with a very, uh, small lamb that he's taking care of. And so w- we made that that short film, The Shepherd, and kind of nothing happened for a while. And then all of a sudden, the right people started seeing it. I remember the head of like acquisitions at MGM for like Faith and Family, she saw it and she was like, we have to acquire this title. But it was too late because somebody else had acquired it. And that somebody else uh, was a distributor who said, hey, I think you should turn this into a full TV show. And then mm. we were off to the races. I mean, it wasn't that smooth. I, I'm making it sound very simple, but that's the most concise version of how we went from just a couple of guys making videos at a church to, you know, making a television show. So someone else actually had the idea, you guys ought to do a series. Well, I think Dallas always wanted to do it. Um, I just think once we made The Shepherd, it was proof of concept. Yes. And then you know, when people said, could there be more of this? He was like, absolutely. There's more where this came from. Uh, he called me and he said, I think we're going to make a TV show. And when can, when can you start? There's a sense when I watch this, Tyler, that I know there's a lot of imagination that goes into it. I don't know if you'd call it historical fiction. Plausible fiction, we call it. Plausible fiction. Well, we could explore the difference. Yeah, because like historical fiction would be like his historical fiction is this definitely happened um, in the past. And then we're creating some fictionalized ideas around it. So we say plausible out of humility because we want to be careful since scripture is so important. We don't want to be perceived as adding to or subtracting from it, but just imagining plausible scenarios that sort of bolster the narrative. Plausible things like it's possible that this could have happened and it, it would fall directly in line and not contradict what's already in scripture. So the sense I get as I watch this is that you're getting it right and that the Holy Spirit is helping you get it right. Because obviously if Jesus is alive and I believe he is, and we have the spirit, he was there. He knew how it went down. And there's Mm. almost this sense of, the Spirit is is helping you, and obviously we're not talking about how the Scriptures came to be, but the Spirit is helping you get it right. Mm. Definitely. I mean, I, all three of us on the writing team have had experiences in the process of writing where we'll say, I don't know where that came from. Yeah. And I, I don't want to make it sound like some mystical, magical thing, but it's a very real thing that sometimes we're nothing but just channels mm-hmm. um, and instruments. And, and in other times it does feel like we're digging ditches and building walls and constructing this house of a story, you know, and it takes a lot of sweat and labor, but then there are other times where something will just come together seemingly without our ever 
you know, having to think too hard about it. I'll just, I remember I, we, in our first meeting, we were in Dallas's basement and I was sitting on the floor next to his dumbbells for his like home workouts. Um, and we were trying to solve a, a story problem. And all of a sudden I, I just said a line that I thought could kind of solve it. And I have no idea where it came from. It just came out of my mouth and Dallas looked at me and he said, that's it. And then they ended up putting that line like on t-shirts and hmm. things that they, that they sell. So that, that's just one example of many times that we've felt like that there's maybe something else. Well, not maybe that there's definitely something else at work um, in this process. Is that the line that Mary Magdalene speaks? Yeah, that was one way that one. Yeah. Tell us that again. Yeah, it was the problem we were trying to solve was was what, how would Magdalene explain to Nicodemus her experience based on the fact that she knows almost nothing about this man. And so the line that I, I proposed was we, we were kind of we went back and forth about all these different ideas, and then I finally just said, "What if it was as simple as she just says to him, I was one way, and now I'm completely different, and the thing that happened in between was him.'" <laughs> because she at that time she doesn't know she doesn't know that he's the messiah you know she doesn't even at at that point in the show she doesn't even know his name he was just this person that walked into a bar and spoke to her and and then everything changed you know they went out of the alley and 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 he said her name and everything changed and so it, it's such a simple line but like i you know it, it just all of a sudden kind of came out so that's that's just one example Jonathan Rooney, he is a regular guy, but I feel like he's getting it right. He's the first, I guess he's the first Jesus person to play Jesus that I really feel like, oh, that's, that's how he would be. And that's how he is. I know, I know it's not perfect, but it's this sense that the Holy Spirit is helping you guys get it right. And when it comes to Jesus, it's really important to get it right. Yeah. Yeah. He has to have that, that, that combination of compassion, humility, wisdom, um, sometimes a little bit edge. I mean, we know there was, there was some edge there from time yeah. to time. He, he can get, he can get spicy, but it's just the right amount, you know, and we're so grateful for Jonathan and his, his own burning hot faith. Mm. Um, and he, you know, we'll be on set and, He'll have to be delivering. If you've seen the show, there, there are times when he has to deliver lengthy sermons. We we, we try not to, for there to be too much preaching. Sometimes people say, "Hey, I wish there were more was more preaching in the chosen from Jesus." And we're like, "You can go to church for a sermon. We we, we want to show you know Jesus's the life and the people around him." And of course, we're going to include things like the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings. But it, oftentimes, we'll be having to shoot one of these lengthy lengthy teachings and um he'll he'll kind of walk off not not walk off like in a bad way but he'll he'll go away um you know step away from the fray of of production off into the trees and you know i i always keep my distance when he does that but i watch him from afar just seeming like he's praying or you know like asking god to help him get it right um, because he knows these words are important and this portrayal is important. And then he'll come back, you know, ready to go. But sometimes, yeah, he just has to take a pause 
because the pace of filmmaking is pretty wild, you know, it's 12 hour days. Sometimes it's at night, often almost always outside, you know, in either the cold or the hot, depending on whether we're shooting in Utah or Texas. So it, it's not an easy environment and he, ha- he has a, a tough job to do, but we're just so grateful for the way that he, you know, you can see that daily he prays that, mm. that he will also get this right. Yeah. And he's got this, he portrays Jesus with all the things you mentioned, but also this holy swagger. It's like a, it's a <laughs> swagger that's, that's right. You know? <laughs> yeah. He's confident. And yeah, yeah. And it's also, uh, you know, the humor, you know, he doesn't take himself so seriously. And those are beautiful things. I'm, I'm glad you appreciate the humor, Perry. We've taken some heat for that. People are like, I don't think you would make a joke. Uh, Jesus wasn't funny. And I'm always just like, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> fully, <laughs> full, full, fully God, fully man. People are funny. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and also humor disarms people. And a lot of people were hostile toward his message. And the things he was saying were, saying were very startling. And so we worked in the humor because that's just that's part of like what a what a real person would do is use humor to kind of yeah get someone to get their guard down. Well, I don't know if you've seen the film Lincoln, but mm-hmm. there there's a point in the film where you know they're wrangling over this the Thirteenth Amendment, and you know it's just getting really hot and hostile. And Lincoln goes, "Well, I'm just going to tell you a story." And one of the guys goes, "No, don't tell a story." Because you know, he tells a funny story. Yeah. Yes, that's a great script by Spielberg and Kushner. Um, and what they knew in that moment is that's a heavy film, and the audience needed a tonal break. Like, there's just so much weight on Lincoln's shoulders and, and the people around him. It, they knew that moviegoers sitting in the theater would need a moment of levity to just kind of just breathe. You, you, you can't. You can't, you can't just, you know, keep pummeling people. So we've deployed that same tactic, like some, because it's a, it's a serious show. I mean, there are, there's some, especially in season three, there's some really difficult challenges that people are facing and it's extremely emotional. And sometimes the audience just needs like to let some air out of the balloon. You're going to go seven seasons. Can you say, are you going to go I know you can't give stuff away, but <laughs> I've re- but I've read the Gospels. <laughs> yeah, you read the book. <laughs> yeah. So, is it going to go at all much beyond the resurrection? Can you say? You know, it, the the extent to which it will go beyond the resurrection is actually kind of still in conversation. We we've had we had this huge retreat in August of 2020 at a, a very remote location in, in Oregon on the Deschutes River. And we, we prayed and we plotted it out and we, we made, we wrote on lots of whiteboards. Um, and we have a, a pretty good idea of where it will end, but there's some things, there's some strings of story that need to get tied up after the resurrection. And one of those is Thomas's reticence uh, to believe that this is really happening. Um, and so, you know, we've, we know we can't just, leave that out and there are a few other things there are there's the story of peter going back to fishing you know in in sort of his shame of feeling like that he he let him he let his rabbi down and and denied him and and so there are some of those those 
story tendrils that we're not going to leave them hanging. We're going to tie those up. We, we have a very specific vision for how the final frame will be, but you're going to have to wait until season yeah. seven to see what that is. But, but to answer your question, no, it's not just going to end with the resurrection. We'll, we'll keep going a little bit after that. Yeah, because that's how the passion ended, the passion of the Christ. That's true. Yeah, he just kind of walked out of the <laughs> cave or whatever. I told my son Taylor that I would be talking with Tyler, and so Taylor has sent me some questions. He says, tell Tyler, tell him the moment with Peter in the boat is one of the most stunning scenes I think has ever been written, shot on film. Oh, wow. That's that's a huge honor, Taylor. Um, (laughs) It was also uh, one of the most stunning things to pull off where I, I just remember we were we were in louisiana in this tank you know with you know blue screens all around the boat. real water real waves real rain well not real rain but you know water coming down from rain spouts like from these huge cranes in the sky the disciples were soaked they were freezing the waves they were like sick you know because we were shooting for 10 hours on the water then just up and down and up and down and up and down and you know they were they were hanging in there and we would send out people on little kayaks to bring them food and water (laughs) Um, and i was just on the shore you know dry dry as can be feeling a little bit guilty for writing the scene (laughs) but then i remember like hey it wasn't my idea god like this is this is in the text like but i was feeling bad you know that they were they were going through so much but i yeah we that was really something and that those actors you know especially even standing i won't reveal our secrets uh but even standing on the the devices that they were using in order to be on literally physically they were actually standing on the water and they were rigged up in certain ways and they were having to deliver these lines you know that we wrote that are in the scripture you know um and and then we we expounded a little bit on them using peter's own epistle you know he says trials uh, prove the genuineness of your faith that's like saying something like this proves the genuineness of your faith that's kind of a mouthful and to say that when you're literally being pummeled by like freezing (laughs) water on an actual rigged up in this crazy way with literal waves like slapping you in the face trying to you know say your lines and be in the moment it was it was a real testament to i I feel like just god's hand on the production and also the the profound um, talent of our our performers and our our team you know the people who had to put that thing together and I have to tell you, being a person who likes to see things pulled off in the right way, executed in the right way, I was a bit nervous about (laughs) Jesus walking on the water, but I have to tell you, it was completely believable. It looked Mm. real. And I thought it was brilliant that, you know, Jesus was not walking right on top, but, but like there was, you know, six inches his feet were maybe six inches underwater. I thought that was a brilliant call. And then to show his feet from up underneath, that was just, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That, I think that that's probably what differentiates it from any other portrayal of just walking on water, because frankly, and this is not to disparage anyone else's attempts to portray the story, because I think that's good. I think, I think, I hope people keep doing this type of, these types of projects forever. Um, so it's not to disparage, but it's never looked good. I, I've yet, and we, cause I'm telling you, we searched high and low for a, a, for something that looks believable, 
And the main problem was the feet being on top of the water. And so when our VFX team talked to us about, you know, putting these, they were kind of like wrestling pads um, secured with cables, like tied to the sides of the tank, putting these like pads just below the water that would be, that would be flexible, that would undulate and move with the water, forcing the actors to move with the water. That mm-hmm you're 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 right right on the right on the money there it was it was having the feet actually be below the water and be propelled by the movement of the waves that made it not look like someone just superimposed or standing on glass because i think in in previous attempts they've often just stood on plexiglass basically um but that's firm and it doesn't move and the material they were standing on was extremely flexible and it required a lot of core strength from the actors because and and they fell a couple of times but they they really were struggling you know to 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 not fall fall over it sounds like you created you created some stuff to pull this off yeah it, it required um not just as you you've mentioned or and your son taylor mentioned imagination but innovation you know it the technological advancements of the past 10 years especially in vfx enabled us um to make you know, to extend that tank into an entire sea of Galilee with lightning and clouds and, and things that might not have even been possible, maybe even five years ago, things, things are advancing so rapidly. And we're, we're very blessed and fortunate to be living in this time where we have access to the innovation and the technology to, to make these stories come to life. Cause your son talked about imagination. Sometimes people read these things and they sort of try to see it in their minds, but it can be tough. And so hopefully by seeing it, it really makes it come alive and be feel real to people you guys have just wrapped up season three mm-hmm. and there's going to be a season four there's going to be seven seasons and yeah. you've got three writers and dallas is one of the writers dallas jenkins right yep and then ryan swanson and myself yeah so to me to my mind i know what it's like to work on creative projects yeah. And to me, it just seems like you guys probably don't sleep because <laughs> you just got to keep churning this stuff out. I mean, uh, do you have time to rest? Do you have a real life? Are you going to have to wait until the end of season seven to have a real life? <laughs> I ask myself that all the time. No, no, we, I, I they don't sleep. Uh, Ryan and Dallas, <laughs> I feel like they don't. I, I have a pretty, this is, I, I really want this to not come across as legalistic i have a very strict policy around shabbat so i i write every day except sunday mm-hmm. um i write every week for six weeks at man on the seventh i stop um i write every month for six months and on the seventh i take a month off it's the only way i'm still alive because as you said we're working constantly um just yesterday I was emailed this, the shooting schedule for season four, which begins at the end of March. Wow. And we've already written season four. And later today, uh, as I'm, I'm talking to you in the morning, this afternoon, I have a, a call with one of my co-writers, Ryan Swanson, about the outline of season five. Wow. And we have drafts of season five due in mid-March and early April. So it, it's a constant thing, but it's been a really a real blessing to me. I mean, again, it was in my Hebrew studies that I learned about the cycles of, of seven. And I, I don't think there's anything mystical or magical about the number seven. Um, and I don't think people should be legalistic about, about Sunday or whatever. I just think it's good to, to rest for at least one day. Every, every, everybody needs to like just unplug 
sometimes I'll just leave my phone off and hang out with my friends and go for a hike here in LA. I get it. I totally get it. And it's part of the rhythm of creation. Yeah, you got to stop at some point and recharge. Here's another question from my son, Taylor. How can we grow as a modern day Christian culture in imaginatively seeing scripture from a first century perspective, which is what you're doing? And, and we, as in the average listener, the average viewer of The Chosen. Yes. How can we grow in our, yes. So C.S. Lewis described something called the sanctified or baptized imagination. So the, the first thing I think, the first way that people can grow in continuing to do this sort of thing is to be okay with using your imagination about scripture and about faith. Because I think sometimes there's a, there can be a rigidity um, around Christianity. And certainly there's guardrails there for a reason, but it can be helpful to kind of loosen up. We, we've just mentioned in the context of this conversation, the value of humor in our show um, and things like that. So I think giving yourself the permission, uh, but with humility, like recognizing like, you know, God, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to mess anything up or, or be too crazy, but I want to, I want to use my imagination about this. That is a good thing. And good things have come from that. That's where we got Narnia when C.S. Lewis allowed himself to just imagine, well, what's another way we could tell this story? So I think that's one way. And the second way, this is far less splashy, maybe a little less appealing, but it is no less important. And that is to do earnest research about the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. It, 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 we, we've got to stop over um, imposing our, our modern Western imagination onto this text. Now we have to bring, it has to be, it has to make sense to, to modern Western viewers, but in order to really grow and using our imagination, gray our faith, you really have to go back and look at how these people live their lives, how they observed these Jewish holidays, how they, how they prayed, how they studied Torah. If you don't understand those things, it can be very, you can get off the rails pretty quick. And here's another text from my son, Taylor. He says, this is more on a personal curiosity note. How do you decide on decisions as a team? Like, how will Jesus respond to Thomas desiring to get married? Curious about what those conversations look like. Oh, that's a great question from, from Taylor. Um, and he, he's referring to a, a narrative that is not in scripture, um, but that we have imagined We've talked about plausibility, and it's very plausible that these 12 young men uh, might have romantic interests. Like, don't leave that. They're like, they're whole people, you know? They have bodies. And so we, we you know, we wanted to have this pitch for Thomas. And I would say, you know, the conversation, you know, how would Jesus respond to something like that? It's very collaborative, meaning there are no bad ideas. Everyone is allowed to say what they think. And once we've landed on, on our kind of final idea, I, I want Taylor and others to know that we also have, we have guardrails around that. So once the scripts are done, they get sent to three people, a messianic rabbi, um, an evangelical historian and a Catholic priest. Hmm. And all three of them read these scripts and they respond with pages and pages and pages of notes 
um, from their perspectives. Cause you know, those are three very different perspectives, but they make up, you know, a large portion of the 6 billion people in the world who identify as Christian, who all view things differently. And so they will, you know, they'll say things like, no, they would never, you know, uh, endorse marriage. And others would say, oh, that's a fascinating idea. There's nothing in scripture that would contradict that notion. And in fact, there's plenty of things in history that, that suggest that many of the disciples did get married after, you know, and have children as they went out on their missions, you know, to fulfill the great commission. So it's, it, we get, feedback from professionals and from from people who've made it their life's work to to study these things and we we weigh all of that in the balance and and we pray about it and then and we decide the number one word i would use is collaborative it's not just the three of us there's there's other people speaking into it and then we also have uh, a researcher um gabrielle litweiler and a story editor uh maisha goslin who also um sort of support us in those moments where we're like how would this go Thanks for listening to Barry and Shauna Replay. To learn more, text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930.